And I think that I don't have a fully worked out idea of what people are, but that something that's really important about people is that they want to live lives that make sense. Um, and make sense in a more robust way than just you can see how effects follow from causes. They want to live a life that makes sense in a very holistic way. And that that's something essential about humans and about a good human life. Welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. Particular Good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. We're coming to you from St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York. We also have campuses in Buffalo, Syracuse, and Albany. All of our courses are offered online. We offer master's degrees in pastoral studies, theology, and philosophy. Today we're talking with Megan Fritz, a philosopher at Utah State University. Megan will talk with us today about moral perfectionism and ethics, non-causality in action, and partial evidentialism with respect to the existence of God. Without further ado, here's Megan. Could you explain what is a supererogatory act and, and why you're so against them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, supererogatory acts are generally defined as uh, actions we do that go above and beyond the call of duty. So um, whatever our moral duty is, a supererogatory act will be something that's, that's even better. So if I am obligated to give some money to charity some of the time, a supererogatory act would uh, be giving, you know, much of my money away all the time or something like that. Um, uh, and why I'm so against them. So I think that the category of the supererogatory, um, well, one I, one, I don't think it's real. Uh, and I think the reason that we're inclined to think that we can go uh, above and beyond our duty is based ultimately in this idea that we we don't really have to be that good. Okay, so that we have like this intuition that what's required of us is actually fairly minimal. And then if we do something that seems good, we're do we're going above and beyond. Is that that's the intuition you're talking about? Right. Yeah. This idea that and and you hear this um, even among philosophers, there's a term for it, uh, the demanding this objection to perfectionist ethical systems. Um, this idea that it's it's it tells against an ethical theory if it's very very demanding of us. Um, and I find that kind of preposterous. It seems like it is actually quite hard to live a good human life and to be good to people. Excellent. And that's a point you made very well in this paper that I was looking through, um, because as I've looked at utilitarianism, that is an objection that people raise against utilitarianism, against Kantianism. Once you really look at what they're saying, they are very demanding, right? They're very demanding. Yeah. I mean, uh, even Peter Singer, kind of the, the, the head of the utilitarian, you know, fan club, uh, he, he even considers himself to be kind of um, a morally bad person in the sense that he's nowhere near kind of marginal utility where he thinks one has to be to be fulfilling their obligation. Yeah. And he gives him and his wife, I think they, last time I heard, they give away something like a quarter to a third of their income, um, which is, which is, obviously huge. And can you explain uh, what utilitarianism is and what something someone like Peter Singer's version of it would be like? How would Peter Singer evaluate what makes something good? 
Yeah, yeah. So Peter Singer uh, is an act utilitarian. He thinks that, and what that means is that uh, our moral obligation at every moment is to do whatever action will maximize overall happiness, uh, which is to say net happiness. Um, so the utilitarian thinks we have a moral duty to uh, whatever the state of the world is after we act, that should have as much happiness in it uh, as possible. It should have more happiness in that world as the world would have had uh, if I had done any other action. That makes sense. So for Singer, um, there in that system, then you couldn't do something that goes above and beyond because anything you do that would go above and beyond results in greater net happiness. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So utilitarianism is explicitly a perfectionist system. Whatever is best, that is just the thing that we're obligated to do. We can't, if there's any better action we could take, we're obligated to take that one. There's no kind of threshold um, of goodness where it's okay if I, uh, if I do the, something that's um, suboptimal as long as it, it's above some threshold. Um, it has to be the very best for the act utilitarian. That's great. And how does this contrast with someone like Kant, who isn't so concerned about happiness or any other consequences at all, but uh, speaks in terms of duty? Is, is Kantian duty not a sort of minimal standard? Um, Kantian duty is, in some sense, it is probably less demanding than utilitarianism. Certainly, it's, it's probably not as difficult to know for the Kantian if you're doing uh, the right thing or not. The With Kant, you have one and only one way of securing uh, goodness in what you do, and that is to act in accordance with your duty. Um, so he has uh, one, one, one moral principle uh, and, and one only, the categorical imperative, which he formulates in a couple of different ways. But for Kant, uh, as long as what we're doing is motivated by our kind of devotion to this categorical imperative, um, then what we're doing is morally valuable. Um, <clears throat> in fact, it's so morally valuable, he says, that our, our will, will will shine like a jewel um, kind of by its own light, it's it's the it's the most valuable thing to have an internal will that wants to uh, adhere to the categorical imperative. The problem is there's no way <clears throat> for cons to get value to get goodness apart from the will to do your duty. So supererogatory actions are actions that go beyond my duty. Kind of by definition, it can't be motivated by a devotion to duty because in fact. It's not my duty to act supererogatorily. So Kant doesn't really have a way of securing any kind of moral value for supererogatory action. The, the, the moral value that I'm doing will stop when I've done my duty out of a will to do my duty. It makes sense. So, what if, so for him, what would the status of willing some good for another person, if I wanted to make my daughter happy and I bought her a new bicycle that she didn't strictly need and goes above and beyond being a good father, perhaps, although that's maybe arguable in your system. Uh, but would Kant view that as a moral act at all or would he just talk about that in a different way? Oh, that's a good question. So Kant does have a category of acts, um, uh, a category of acts um, where uh, or sorry, a category of duties called imperfect uh, duties, where we have 
we have a duty to do certain kinds of actions sometimes. So um, giving to charity is, is one of these kinds of duties for cons, something that I have a duty to do some of the time. I'm failing my duty if I never do this, but there's no particular time, place, amount that I have um, <clears throat> that I have a, a, a duty to give to charity. Um, so plausibly, you giving your daughter gifts or things that will bring her happiness is a kind of imperfect duty. Uh, parents have an imperfect duty to sometimes give their children things they'll enjoy and play with. Um, so you're, you're doing that could be the fulfilling of a duty, in which case it would be morally valuable for Kant. Um, but it's not going to be beyond your duty. Uh, and in fact, if you, you know, got your daughter new toys every single day uh, in kind of this attempt to go beyond your duty, you might just be failing your duty because you may also have an imperfect duty to not spoil your children or something. Right. What, how do we talk about gifts? What, is there such a thing as a gift that is not an imperfect duty per se, are gifts a thing? Can we talk about gifts in this kind of system? Oh, I mean, we have to be able to talk about gifts. So any any kind of moral system that doesn't allow us to talk about gifts is probably not a great one. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're right. that We don't want to say uh, that, that I have a duty to gift people things. That seems, um, I don't know, that seems like the, the ramblings of a, a crazed anthropologist or something. Uh, <laughs> But, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that, so I think to start with, uh, we don't actually need to accept that uh, when we, duties are kind of what morality boils down to, that duties are fundamental. Um, I don't think duties are fundamental. Uh, I am inclined toward a, a virtue ethics approach um, to understanding what I ought and ought not to do. Um, which is just to say that I think uh, when we talk about what we ought to do and ought not to do, we're sort of making this oblique reference to uh, an ideal version of ourselves or kind of a paradigm human. Um, duties, this talk of duties is very uh, contractual. And I think duties, it does make sense to talk about duties um, when we're talking about uh, relationship with someone that we have some kind of explicit or implicit contract with. Um, but I don't think that duties are the, the, the fundamental stuff uh, of, of morality, of ethics. And so gift giving is just something that is, um, I think, uh, can't be understood in terms of duties, but in virtue of that also can't be understood as supererogatory. There's nothing that we're going beyond uh, when we give a gift. We're just hopefully, um, uh, hopefully, uh, manifesting ourselves as good uh, people in relationships with other people. Awesome. So say more about virtue theory. That's uh, that's another part of this paper is why virtue theory doesn't allow for supererogatory acts either. Um, and this is big in our context here at St. Bernard's. We like, of course, a Catholic school, the catechism is based on virtue theory, and <laughs> Thomas Aquinas loves virtue theory. So talk to us about that. What's virtue theory, um, and why does it require perfection as well? So virtue ethics is this idea that we should evaluate what we do and what we're doing uh, in terms of the kinds of character traits that our, our actions flow from. Uh, we have 
uh, particular dispositions to act, to behave, to be certain ways. Uh, we might have the disposition to be courageous or the disposition to be cowardly or the disposition to be um, kind of reckless. Um, and, uh, and what we want is to have virtuous character traits instead of vicious ones. And Aristotle conceives of, of vice, of vicious character traits as uh, the extremities of the virtue. So if courage is a virtue, then we have uh, cowardice as one extreme lack of courage and recklessness as one extreme, um, we might think of it as an overabundance of courage. Um, so the, the golden mean he refers to as the perfect uh, middle point between two vices. And where this golden mean is will differ from person to person. So virtue ethicists are often uh, what are called particularists. They don't think that right and wrong uh, can be understood in terms of generalizable principles, that it's going to be particular for each person because it will depend on so many little things about them and their situation. Um, virtue ethicists are split on whether we can act supererogatorily. So you brought up Aquinas. Aquinas wants to talk about supererogation. He, uh, he likes the category and many virtue ethicists feel the same. Uh, in fact, Rebecca Stengel is someone who we respond to in this paper who is a virtue ethicist and works on virtue theoretic accounts of supererogation. Um, but many virtue ethicists also think uh, there's a difficulty locating the category of supererogatory uh, in virtue ethics, and, and I'm one of those people. Um, so in virtue ethics, we, we lack an idea of duty, except maybe the kinds of duties that arise explicitly from contracts uh, or agreements. Um, duty is not the fundamental stuff of ethics, uh, but to the extent that some uh, act departs from what the virtuous thing to do is, to that extent, it's vicious. So uh, virtue ethicists like Rebecca Stengel, they want to um, kind of talk about there being a realm of basically good enough to count as virtuous. Um, and then outside this sort of threshold uh, is all the, all the things I might do that, that wouldn't be virtuous, that would be vicious. Um, so uh, this is sometimes referred to as the target-centered approach. I believe that's a term that Hearst House coined, but... Uh, um, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. I guess I'm quoting myself on that since I'm being quoted. Um, uh, but other people have argued, well, uh, we have this target-centered approach. The problem is uh, the target always has to have a very center point. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, we can, we can talk about the target as having kind of a, a large center point, but you're always going to be able to get more centered if you have a large center point. Um, and if it's true that to the extent that some action is, is not virtuous, therefore it is vicious, it seems like there's nothing really we can do that's just virtuous enough. It's, it's going to be, you know, it's, it's virtuous to some extent and vicious to some extent. Um, so it's unclear, at least for me, it's very unclear uh, what it would mean for some action to be supererogatory on a virtue theoretic understanding. It seems like uh, if we're going to say that, then we have to say that some actions which are, in fact, slightly vicious are virtuous. That makes sense. And how would, how would this apply in your, in your um, thinking here, especially along the virtue ethics line? 
to most human actions. So when I get up and make breakfast, have some coffee, are those imperfect actions? Are they perfect actions? Are they vicious? Are they, are they virtuous? And along with that, are there many actions that I could do that would be not super erogatory, but also not vicious? Or is there one action that I must aim at? And if I miss it somehow, I'm, I'm off in the weeds. Yeah, good. So your question is getting at what uh, is the most common uh, objection to this kind of framework, which again is this perfection, or sorry, this um, over-demanding this objection that, uh, well, if, if perfectionism is true, we must just be constantly morally failing at all times. How am I supposed to figure out what the single best action is? All of these problems that make uh, the, the moral life seem so demanding uh, as to be sort of um, alien looking to the to the, the, the normal human life, which of course was uh, Bernard Williams' critique of utilitarianism, that the good utilitarian life is so, uh, it just looks entirely foreign to what we would imagine a good human life actually looks like. Um, so I will say, I don't think there's any need. Uh, I, I think that these critiques arise from a wedding of perfectionism with utilitarianism. This idea that the, the best thing to do would obviously be the thing that produces the most happiness uh, or uh, 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 makes the most net goodness uh, happen. I think that we often think like utilitarians, even if we don't describe ourselves as utilitarians, even if we don't accept utilitarianism, we still have this kind of idea like, oh, well, I should really just quit my job and go work for a nonprofit. That would that would be better. I'm not going to do it, but man, I'd be really good if I did. Um, and so this kind of uh, like subconscious accepting of uh, utilitarianism as like actually correct uh, is sort of strange to me. Um, I, I don't find utilitarianism even, even mildly persuasive in pretty much any situation. <laughs> so if we get rid of utilitarianism, I think it's, it's much easier to conceive of the perfect life is not like bizarrely demanding. Um, especially if we have like a virtue ethical uh, idea of what the, the best life would look like, uh, presumably it's just going to, it's going to be something very familiar to us. It would be the life that's actually just the very best for a person to live. Um, you also asked about a singular best action. And I also don't think the perfectionist needs to accept this. Um, I'm perfectly fine with saying in any given situation, there might be a very long disjunction of actions that are all just as, as virtuous, just as good uh, to perform and that I can do any one of them and, and not fail, uh, to, and not, not be vicious or fail my duty or whatever normative uh, terminology we want to use there. That makes sense. I, I was thinking about Thomas again, where he says that m most actions are either good or, or either virtuous or vicious doesn't have a lot, there's not a lot of neutral acts, but that things that we might think as neutral, like what you choose for breakfast, I, I'm going to have eggs, Heather's going to have cereal, she's going to have eggs too. But like, you know, we would, we would, those types of decisions are um, good in as much as they reflect human nature and will. And there are actually, most actions are good for him. Uh, is that is that how you would view this as well within this system? 
Yeah. So most of those kinds of actions, I would agree. Those are, those are good. Those are us um, providing for our needs and the needs of loved ones and, uh, and right, basically just carrying out the, the basic tenets of a, a flourishing human life. Um, I am, a, a, I, I have some inclinations toward pessimism uh, along this line though, because I do actually think that we are much worse than we think of ourselves as being. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, many kinds of studies uh, on this have shown that people often um, will adjust their behavior for how good they think they've been in recent past. Wow. So if, if someone's just done something very virtuous, like given to a charity, they'll kind of give themselves a, um, a hall pass to do something bad uh, after that. Because they, well, they, I've done something good now, so I kind of deserve to, <clears throat> to do this bad thing. So I do think that we are not nearly as hard on ourselves as I think. And I think that a lot of um, a lot of the time when we think we're doing something kind of morally benign, like simply keeping the money that we earn, keeping all of it, or um, uh, other things like this, deciding to indulge our desires in one way or another instead of helping someone out, we tend to think of help, as, of charity, as being in the realm of supererogatory such that I can pretty much never help anyone in my life if I want to. And I'm, I haven't failed in any way. And I think that's really bad. I, I think that often when we're doing something we take to be benign and maybe we take it to be benign because we have this concept of, you know, I, well, I have a right to my stuff, which is a different conversation when I also think is quite silly. But often when we do that, when we appeal to rights or to the, you know, to, to what we deserve, then we're actually doing something bad. That's very interesting. So you're, you're really threading a needle between a, a, a type of extremely demanding utilitarianism that says like, we ought to just not have this life at all, but fly immediately somewhere and, and sacrifice our, our anything we else we might want to do to help people directly. And a sort of general positive stance on human nature that humans mostly are good. And, and uh, if we just bumble along, we can avoid being bad. So you're, you're, you're not being demanding from a sort of philosophical perspective, but you are sort of being demanding as you think about human nature. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think, I think living well is actually extremely demanding. I just don't think it's utilitarian. Right. I think living well doesn't really have anything to do with maximizing net happiness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the trajectory of the, the human life in general. Yeah. Yeah. How do we do this? Oh, how do we do this? That's a good question. I think actually how we do this is that inquiry has to start with trying to figure out what we are. Inquiry has to start with trying to uh, deduce what human nature actually is. Um, I mean, if the, if, the, if the social Darwinists are right, <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe it's not demanding at all. Uh, so I think inquiry has to start there. What are uh, humans? And, and by what are humans, I don't, of course, mean... Uh, I'm not asking for like frequency data. Um, I'm asking for what Michael Thompson calls type historic judgments. Uh, so um, what are, you know, what is the paradigmatic human like? Uh, and then once we get an idea of that, then we can start filling out our ideas about the, the kinds of character traits that we need to uh, manifest and the sorts of actions that we ought to do will 
hopefully flow from that. That's fascinating. And how does he and you, um, this is Thompson in this case, talk about type historical type historical humans? How, how do we find those people? <laughs> Are we talking oh. about heroes, saints, that kind of thing? Ah, that's it. Yeah, so type historical judgments for Thompson are um, generalizations that we make about about types, about forms of life, um, mm-hmm. based on our interactions with them. Okay. So I can make the type historical judgment that tigers have stripes, even though there may be, um, you know, some tigers that don't, even if all the tigers that have stripes, in fact, died, and only the tigers that were left were ones that don't have stripes, it would still be true to say tigers have stripes. It's a particular kind of judgment that's not exactly a universally quantified statement, but he called them type historical judgments. Okay. Um, so when we're determining, uh, when we're making type historical judgments about humans, in part, it, I mean, it, in large part, it comes from our interactions with other humans. We start to kind of get this sixth sense about, uh, in virtue of what someone's doing better or worse. Um, and through that, we can kind of make judgment calls that are more or less accurate on um, what makes lives in general better or worse. That's great. This calls to mind um, this book by Jason Blakely that I know you've read, um, and I'm forgetting the title suddenly because I wasn't planning to talk about this, but uh, he critiques Blakely in this book, sort of economic rational choice theory narrative about what humans are, right? And, and, and points out that when we tell ourselves a story that humans are basically selfish and choose what's best for themselves in every case, then humans start to act more like that, right? Yeah, and yeah. Did you find this critique of a particular narrative that we culturally hold about humans convincing? And if so, like, how do we avoid grabbing hold of a false narrative as we think about type historical uh, humanity? That's a super fascinating question, right? So Blakely's book, uh, We Built Reality, so mm-hmm. it's, it's an excellent book. Um, and I think he is yeah, entirely correct uh, in, in that area. Um, so uh, the first question you asked was how, how did we kind of um, get this idea of humans as like rational maximizers? And this is something that I actually talk about right at the end of my dissertation. Sadly, I, I didn't have room to go into this fully. But I see it as, and this is a vast oversimplification. So just warning to listeners, I'm going to, I'm going to oversimplify quite a lot right now. But we have inherited from the, well, from Descartes, from the rise of modernism uh, and, and continuing on, uh, a view of humans that is largely mechanistic. This is mm-hmm. something Blakely talks about in his book as well. And it's hard for us to understand how different our mechanistic views of of humans and the rest of the world is from the idea of humans and the rest of the world that was in place before this. It's hard for us to imagine because our our minds have been so shaped by, well, as as Blakely argues, by uh, methods to investigate uh, the social sciences, by just the ways that people casually talk. We've been so shaped to think of ourselves as machines or to think of our brains as computers, as things that uh, are mechanical that can be tinkered with, and this and this leads to exactly the kinds of things that Blakely's concerned about. This idea that well, if we're machines, how do we function? And and the idea that arises from this is well, we function uh, by you know we have these these desires, these beliefs that are you know parts of our brain or or something, and and these cause what we do. And so of course we're always rationally maximizing because 
desire brain states, you know, are, that is what makes us do what we do. Um, so we're always trying to do that. Uh, that's what it means to act. And so this, um, these, these economic theories, these theories of human action or theories of how we make decisions that count on humans being the kinds of things that just go after their desires in the most efficient way they can think of. That's the obvious picture you're going to get from an understanding of the world and humans in particular as mechanical. That's amazing. Thank you. So this brings me to a shift in topic because as you ended here and talked about desire states leading to action and this view of human action and what it means to be human, this is part of your dissertation work, like you mentioned. Can you describe uh, broadly what your dissertation is about? Yeah. So my dissertation is a big critique of the standard theory of explaining human actions. So in, in my area of philosophy uh, called philosophy of action or action theory, um, basically one of the big debates is how do we explain human action? And by how do we explain, I kind of mean what is the relationship between my actions and the things that explain them? What is the nature of that explanatory relationship? The standard view is pretty simple. The standard view is that the relationship between my reasons for acting and my actions is a causal one. My reasons cause what I do. That's the standard view. And by standard, I mean really standard. Like pretty much this is just accepted as, as given um, among um, most philosophers. So my dissertation is a big critique of well, it's a critique of the theory, but it's the, a critique of the theory from a methodological perspective. So I'm critiquing the method of action theorizing that leads to the causal theory being the standard theory. That makes sense. So I read this chapter you sent on uh, reasons explanation of actions as structural explanations. And uh, this was very fascinating. And I wanted to talk about this. So... You start with a historiographer and historian, Collingwood, uh, who and his explanation of how action works. Uh, so can you talk with me about that? First of all, the semantic explanation, and then why this gets sort of rejected by causal theorists, and then how you respond to those causal theorists. So yeah, definitely. I absolutely love Collingwood. The idea of history is, is a fantastic book. Every, every I mean, it's huge, but people should read it. It's so good. So Collingwood uh, is interested in this question that was, it was something people talked about at the time. I think Hempel talks about it as well. This idea of uh, how do we give historical explanations? And then Collingwood's interested in a specific version of that question, which is how do we give historical explanations of actions? And this is, again, an oversimplification, but Collingwood ends up arguing that we we explain the actions of historical, what it means rather to explain the actions of historical figures is to simply explain something that happened in terms of it being an action, to talk about uh, the, 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 the motivations, the character of the person in such a way that what they did made sense. It was kind of contextualized. And that's just what it means for Collingwood to talk about, uh, to, to explain something in, in history as an action. That makes sense. Yeah. He's describing this uh, an act as an act um, this way, but does not want to say that a historical action has a causal explanation, but more that it's, it's a uh, semantic 
designation that we give an act. This is what an act, what we mean by an act is an act with a, with a character who we're giving some sort of narrative to. Is that? That's precisely right. Yeah. Okay. All right. And how does this relate to the Wittgenstein, the famous Wittgenstein quote that um, take a, you're raising your hand and actions what's left if you take away the raising of the hand? Yeah, yeah. So Wittgenstein, he asks this question. He, he says, what's left over when I subtract the fact that my arm went up from the fact that I raised my arm? And action theorists have taken this question in the philosophical investigations and really ran with it. They, they took Wittgenstein to be giving a sort of equation for deducing what the real kernel is that is the action. It's whatever is left over. Um, in reality, Wittgenstein is asking a rhetorical question because the answer to that question is nothing. <laughs> Nothing's left over. There isn't anything there. So he thinks that this idea that the action is really the willing, the, the willing of my arm to go up, not the going up of my arm. Uh, he finds that preposterous. And this is kind of the, uh, the, the other view about action that's out there that he's responding to. So Wittgenstein's also a semanticist about action. He thinks that what it means, how we explain an action is just to place something that, to talk about something that happened in the, the language game of action. So if I'm already, so I should tell you what a language game is. So a language game is uh, a way of communicating that is specific to a particular domain of activity. Uh, so I could have a language game for, language game for chess, something very small. I might have a, Wittgenstein's examples, uh, language games are like the language games of builders uh, so, so someone, a uh, set of people building a house could have a language game where they say a word like hammer or slab and, and immediately the, their, their partner knows what they're talking about and they hand them the correct tool. So a language game is a, a way of getting things done via communication, via speech or writing that is particular to a certain domain. So he sees action, uh, in, intentional action as a language game itself. Uh, it is uh, a, it's a it's a particular domain, the domain of intentional agency, and we have terms that we use to convey meaning or to get things done. And just the language of action of intentionality that is um, just a, a, a way of interacting in a particular language game. So, um, what what does Davidson come along? Like, Davidson doesn't like these semantic theories, right? So, what, what what's his problem with? Davidson doesn't like these theories because Davidson wants action explanations to be truth apt. He wants them to be true or false. And this is kind of understandable because we might think, well, that, you know, that's all well and good, Collingwood and Wittgenstein. But, um, you know, I want historians in the future who will definitely be writing about me to explain what I did in a true way. I don't want them to give false explanations of what I'm doing. I think that, or, you know, Davidson thinks that when you explain actions, um, those explanations are either true or false. And we need a theory of action explanation that can get us there. If we have a purely semantic view, um, well, we're just explaining the action just insofar as we are, you know, saying, talking about what happened qua action, talking about it as an action. And so there's no real way to fail to do that unless you just utterly are, are utterly inept at uh, contextualizing some event or some happening. Um, so Davidson thinks these explanations need to be true. And he thinks in order to be true, there has to be a way of distinguishing the wrong action explanations from the correct action explanations. And 
if we're purely a contextualist, like maybe Collingwood or purely a semanticist like Wittgenstein, then all the reasons that rationalize what I'm doing will be good action explanations of what I did. But of course, I could have many reasons for doing something, even if none of those are the reasons I ultimately do do that thing. So there's a difference there. And Davidson, understandably, wants a theory of action explanation that can uh, illuminate this distinction. Very good. And so here's where you come in and say, this is great. And Davidson wants this causal explanation, which will then, as I understand it, say that the action happens because of beliefs and desires in the acting subject, right? So if I act, it's because I have a belief, I have a desire. This maps on very well to my understanding of what we were talking about earlier, where we're all motivated. Every single action we have comes from some sort of motive. Um, the motive is based on some sort of belief or desire. And where we throw in the rational choice theory is that all of those motives, desires, beliefs will eventually get back to how does this benefit me in some way, right? Um, so that's, I'm not putting that on Davidson, but that's, you, you have this sort of like everything you do, whether you know it or not, is motivated by some sort of desire or belief as a sort of accepted idea, not only in action theory, but in everyday life as an ethical theory, uh, you encounter this kind of thing all the time, right? So uh, you say no. So uh, Davidson's not right about this. You're sympathetic to his wanting to be more truthful or truth apt than Wittgenstein uh, and his language game, but you don't think the causal theory is correct, right? So why not? Right. So yeah, you're exactly right. Davidson thinks that in fact, the only way to distinguish uh, candidate reasons, like all the reasons I could have acted on from the reasons I did in fact act on, uh, is to show which reasons caused what I did. So my reasons for acting are not just all those reasons that rationalized what I did, but those reasons particularly that caused what I did. Yeah, and Davidson actually differs a little bit from his more contemporary causal theory peers, because Davidson actually didn't think beliefs and desires were themselves brain states. He thought they were represented in brain states and the brain states actually caused what I did. I think most uh, adherents to the standard theory now kind of just think beliefs and desires are, are brain states, mental states uh, that, that do directly cause themselves. But that's sort of not the most important difference, right? So I want to say uh, that I am sympathetic to Davidson wanting action explanations to be truth apt. I think we can't really fault Collingwood, uh, who's trying to explain the actions of you know people in ancient Rome and such. Uh, or maybe not caring that much about the truthfulness of them. But certainly when we're trying to explain our actions from day to day, we, we think that they are true or false. And so we need a theory that can capture that. I'm not convinced by his argument that a causal relationship is the only thing that can distinguish these two categories. I think that, uh, and I argue that, a different kind of relationship distinguishes these two categories, which is that our actions are related structurally to our real reasons for acting in a particular way. Okay, say more about that. Uh, they're structurally related. You, how, what's the structure? And how do we know, understand, or describe that? Good. So this is, I'm going to try to make this as untechnical as possible. So let's, uh, let's go back to our friend Michael Thompson, because I'm going to bring him in again. 
Uh, he's great, by the way. Everyone should read Life in Action if they're interested in this stuff. So Thompson puts forth a theory of reasons. Uh, he calls this naive action theory. So he thinks, well, I, rather, I think to, to talk about this debate, we need to start with an idea of what reasons are. So Davidson is assuming that our reasons for actions are things that we can say in favor of the action. They are judgments about how good the action is or judgments about how I can attain this particular thing I desire. So reasons are going to be uh, either, they're going to be either motivational or representational. And he, in fact, thinks we need both a motivational reason and a representing reason. And then these will cause me to act by showing me why what I'm about to do is, is good. Thompson has a different view of reasons. They are not beliefs about the thing we're about to do or desires to do the thing we're going to do. Our reasons for actions, Thompson says, are actually other actions that we are involved in. So he calls this naive action theory because he realizes this is not how we describe why we're doing what we're doing. He knows that we explain, we often explain what we're doing in terms of desires or beliefs, but he thinks that this uh, that, that, that these um, come after the, the judgment that what I'm doing is a necessary activity for some other activity that I'm involved in. Um, so it doesn't matter how much I uh, want to um, make a stir fry or believe that going to the store will help me make a stir fry. If I'm not already engaged in the activity of making dinner, of making a stir fry, those beliefs and desires aren't going to do anything because it's not, it's not actually an activity I'm pursuing. So I won't go to the store unless I am actually already committed to this activity of say making dinner. So he thinks our true reasons for actions are other activities, which our current action is a constituent of. So this difference uh, in what reasons are illustrates why the Thompsonian view isn't going to be a causal view. It's not like my larger activity causes me to uh, do these other things that are constituents of it. It's that it, it requires it to some extent to be involved in this larger activity of making dinner is just to commit myself to also being involved in the smaller activity of going to the store. So there's a kind of ne Russian nesting doll structure to human agency. Is this at all teleological? That's a really good question. So I think, yes, it is teleological in the, in the sense that, um, and I talk about, uh, I do also talk about in this chapter, I spend a lot of time talking about what Aristotle calls the practical syllogism. Uh, the practical syllogism is kind of what it sounds like. It's, it's, a, it's in the form of a syllogism, uh, a kind of uh, a logical syllogism. And the conclusion of the syllogism, Aristotle says, is an action. So a practical syllogism differs from any theoretical argument we can give because theoretical argument ends in a proposition about what we should believe. A practical syllogism for Aristotle ends literally in an action. So the syllogism captures our practical reasoning. So, so the practical syllogism has a teleological structure. My practical reasoning has a teleological structure. I have to become aware in some way of the premises of the practical syllogism, which uh, Aristotle describes in terms of a universal premise, some, some premise about um, something that's universally true, and then a particular premise, some idea about 
some particular thing uh, that um, instantiates this universal truth in some way. And that this results in me acting. So here's an example. I might be aware of the fact that um, all sweet things are good to eat. And then I might also be aware of the fact that this particular morsel is sweet. And the result of the syllogism is that I then eat that morsel. So this syllogism has a very clearly teleological structure. Um, there's uh, an end, there's uh, sort of the, the, the progress of my reasoning gets me to this end uh, that is rationalized. But I, I so some non-causal action theorists, and there are others out there, uh, a few, uh, want to say that the relationship between reasons and action, uh, the explanatory relationship, is teleological. So in particular, Scott Sehan, who is amazing, he is kind of the, um, the person who, who argues this the strongest, this idea that uh, reasons and actions are related to each other teleologically, that the, the action is the end and the reasons are show why, why this particular end is, uh, is the trajectory uh, that we need to be going in. So I, I don't, I don't want to say that the relationship between reasons and actions is teleological, even though I think actions are, in fact, end-oriented. In fact, I think they're always aimed at the good. Um, but I don't want to say the relationship between reasons and actions are teleological. I want to say that they're actually structural. I think that um, the practical syllogism, where we have our reasons for acting and then the action itself, so we have our reasons for acting, which are larger activities, and then the action in question, which is a smaller constituent activity of some larger activity, that these are related to each other structurally. And I think, and structural explanations are, I mean, one of the reasons I think this is just that uh, teleological explanations are sort of in dispute uh, about whether they are a, a, a real sort of explanation or whether they just ultimately reduce to causal relationships or not. And I think we can kind of avoid that debate because even if there is a teleological relationship, there's also a structural relationship. Mm -hmm. And structural explanations are pretty much universally accepted as a, as a kind of explanation. So what does a, a structural explanation look like if I want to... I'm going to make stir fry for dinner. I'm going to the store. And I have other reasons I'm going to the store at this point. And so a causal thing is fairly straightforward. I want to make stir fry. So I go to the store and get chicken that's the, the cause of my action. What does a structural explanation of this look like? Good, so let's use a different case first to illustrate it and then apply it to this one. Um, so a family is a structure. We have different um, relationships that determine the kind of role each person has in the family. And I might say, well, why, uh, why, is, why does this person call this other person mom? And I might give a structural explanation for that. Well, because you know, she's uh, his parent and she's the, 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 the female parent. And, or I might ask, why does this person call this other person sister? I might give a structural explanation for that. I might say, well, because she's related to this other person in the sense that they both uh, share parents uh, and that means they have this relationship. And so that's why uh, it is, it's the thing to do for this person to refer to this other person as sister. So in order to understand how a structural explanation of an action would work, uh, I have to explain something else, which is that I actually take the question of action to be something a little bit different than the causal theorist does. 
So the causal theorist, they think that what we're explaining when we explain actions is why did this action occur? Mm. And so it's hard to imagine a kind of non-causal explanation of that. But I think we shouldn't take this, we shouldn't take this for granted. We shouldn't assume that is what we're acting, asking when we say, why are you going to the store? Um, I think there is another thing that we're actually asking, not uh, why did this event occur that you're going to the store? Rather, I think we're asking, why is, why is that the thing to do? Why do you think that's the thing to do? And so by referring to different parts of the structure of agency, referring to the larger activity that my current activity is a smaller constituent of, what I can do is I can show the relation between these activities, which will illuminate why the thing I'm doing now is the thing to do. That makes sense. So in this account, I'm not asking why did I go to the store, but why was going to the store the thing to do, which then brings it into relationship with the larger activity of making dinner. Exactly. And that's a Russian Nessengal with a, another question is why is making dinner the thing to do, which is subsistence as a physical human being or something like this? Yeah, right, exactly. So each activity that we do for reasons is going to have to make reference to some larger activity. And uh, maybe eventually one day I'll, I'll argue why I think this makes uh, the, the guise of the good thesis makes so much sense. This idea that everything we do uh, is done under the guise of the good. Everything we do, uh, we, we, we judge it to be good. Even if, even if we tell ourselves we judge it to be evil and we want to do evil, so that's why we're doing it. In doing it, we're actually just making this judgment that it is the thing to do for some reason or other. So, right, I think ultimately, you know, if we, uh, if we go up, if we, uh, you know, keep putting the dolls inside the larger dolls, the, the very largest doll is just going to be this, is, is going to be the activity of pursuing the good. And within Aristotelian ethics, the guise of the good is often taken up by folks who, again, going back to the perfectionism points, don't see all human activity as, as a normative in the same way that something like utilitarianism would, right? So the guise of the good is a way in which we're thinking about being human and can take choose among a wide variety of things, right, that are all good uh, and aiming at a good. Uh, so it's, it can be somewhat relativistic, like you suggested with Aristotle's golden mean. It depends on the person, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think that's true even of my... Um... My, my argument for this particular theory of action explanation, um, an objection that I get a lot is that, well, these reasons don't explain why your action was the thing to do, because there might be instances where many, many different activities could actually be that constitutive part of your larger activity. And I'll just say what I said to uh, the, this question in the super irrigation paper, that there may be just a long disjunction of things that are the thing to do in the sense that they fill this particular constitutive role and that that any one of those things could could be there. It makes sense. And it also, uh, if I can leap from this again, it also occurs to me that one thing that you can do for the larger constituent purpose of living the good life, the guys of the good, uh, is faith. And your argument about, um, in your paper, Evidence Through a Glass Darkly, for a sort of... Um, partialist evidentialism, which I understood to be a, a sort of Kierkegaardian leap into deciding, committing to something in a certain way, 
and then also finding the evidence and seeing the evidence that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see because you've made that commitment. Not a um, evidentiary argument for faith in sort of a universalizing way, but in more of a you'll know it when you commit to it kind of way. Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. So the the kind of view that I'm responding to in this paper uh, is a particular view of faith that is um, that is evidentialist, which is to say that we um, we have faith in in something insofar as the beliefs we have about that thing are are formed by the evidence that we have of it. So if I have a faith in a particular God from a particular religion, that that faith is coming from the fact that I have examined all the evidence and then decided uh, that that placing my faith in this thing is is the thing that I ought to do given the evidence. So I respond. Uh, at, well, I, I should also say the the view that this paper I'm responding to, the view that that paper is arguing against, is a view called partialism. The idea that faith is this unique kind of attitude we have that's actually made excellent by uh, either ignoring uh, evidence against the object of faith or just sort of weighting it very lightly. So the author, Catherine Dormandy, she compares partialism, this, this partialist notion of faith to ideas um, that we might have about relationships. So I might think that my relationship to my husband is actually made better if I overlook some evidence of some, some stuff that looks like evidence that he, you know, did something bad or stupid or something. And, and that by ignoring that, uh, or by assuming that this is just misleading evidence, I am actually uh, making my, my love for him more excellent. And that's the partialist idea of faith that she is, she's against. So my view is trying to uh, say that there's kind of a middle path here. That there is a sense in which uh, it partially pursuing an object of faith without the requisite evidence is excellent making, but that the evidence, assuming that this is a, a faith-worthy object, there is there is evidence that makes the faith evidentially justified that can be obtained post-acceptance. So this is similar to committing to a relationship. This is an element of trust. You don't, you don't, um, there's some... We would say, right, that there are some evaluation that's happening when you go on your first date or something, but uh, but you, at some point, you're committing, uh, and then the evidence comes after that commitment. That's exactly right. And one of my arguments from a view in the paper is that it actually does make more sense of the relationship analogy uh, that she uses throughout the paper, uh, that that it's it's neither true that we, um, you know, are, are complete evidentialists in relationships, surely we're not. Um, but it's also not true that we're just partialists for the entirety of the relationship. I, I won't, you know, ignore evidence that my husband's a serial killer for 20 years. That would be idiotic of me. Um, at some point, if, if evidence <laughs> of his good character fails to kind of, you know, show itself in my engagement as a relationship, then, then there's a problem. It's Halloween today, so the phone call within the house is <laughs> particularly relevant. <laughs> Let's hope he's not. Never know. Um, good. So, how would I'm I'm intuiting a connection here that I'm having a difficult time uh, expressing? But how does this view of yours on faith and evidence relate to your action theory and your understanding of the human person? Oh, that's a really good question. 
I guess a similar theme throughout my work is that is that like mental states aren't that important, um, <laughs> particularly beliefs. Uh, I I I'm going to get in trouble with epistemologists <laughs> for saying this. Um, I find belief to be the just simply the, the epistemic category of belief to be really opaque and in in many many situations unhelpful. Which I mean, you can see this manifesting itself in uh, my action theory. This idea that our actions are partially caused by beliefs, sort of unclear what what a belief even is, such that it could could cause something. Some people want to cash out beliefs in terms of behaviors, so that already wouldn't be very helpful. Um, I am kind of drawn to this semi-behavioristic uh, notion of belief, and then especially in the case of religious faith, um, I see belief as being just kind of uh, massively unhelpful um, because, I mean, the, the kinds of things that we have beliefs about that we can straightforwardly say we have beliefs about, um, you know, like the that I have a cup sitting here. Uh, we see criticism from uh, people writing about what's called pragmatic encroachment, this idea that we become less confident that we believe something when the stakes are high. And Maybe there's a way of dealing with this that still allows us to retain a, uh, an idea of belief, but it seems at best a sort of nebulous concept. And I think especially when it comes to religious faith, this might just be a personal thing, but I never found beliefs to be a very solid ground to stand on. What is a more solid ground to stand on when it comes to religious faith? Uh, are we sort of taking belief as a sort of bug in the software or um, <laughs> in the mechanistic universe? Is, is belief a sort of, as you're an, analyzing it, a very modern conception contrasted with something else? Or is it, yeah, what, what is a, what's the ground that we should stand on? Yeah, so I guess I just understand belief as a, a mental assent to a proposition. Um, some people want to cash out beliefs instead of being binary, either I believe something or I don't. They want to cash them out in terms of credences. So I might uh, have a confidence of 0.5 that some proposition is true, which is just to say that I am I'm completely agnostic about whether it's true or not. And then a, a, a credence of one that a proposition is true, I'm 100% certain it's true. So I guess I think, it, especially when it comes to religious faith, the idea of mentally assenting to propositions is very difficult when we part of the part of the faith is that these propositions that we're supposed to be assenting to are at best analogies, allegories uh, for the things that we're actually talking about to assent to a proposition that some some particular piece of dogma is true is um, what is that? If, if, if the dogma itself is an allegory or an analogy for something, then I'm kind of unsure what I'm doing when I assent to it. Uh, am I saying that the allegory captures what's important about the thing itself, but then I don't have direct access to the thing itself. So what's a better uh, a better sort of thing to, to talk about than beliefs? Well, I think that commitment is, is a better thing to talk about. So we might not know what it means to believe that some allegorical proposition is true, but we might know what it means to commit to living as though it's true. So then faith... In, in the religious sense, is not merely an assent to propositions, but a, a commitment to a way of life, a commitment to 
an as if. Yeah, a commitment to an as if um, for the reason that one judges that course of action to be good, to be worth taking. What? So I will ask the epistemology question. <laughs> so is not if belief is sort of meh. This idea that knowledge is true belief. What is <laughs> what? What's knowledge then? I guess. Oh no. We don't I, have to go there if you don't want to. No, 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 we can. <laughs> My answer to this is just annoying to most epistemologists because I find knowledge completely uninteresting unless it's practical knowledge. <laughs> That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, practical yeah. knowledge is very interesting. Theoretical knowledge is um. I always I I love to annoy epistemologists by saying that I think knowledge is confident true belief. Um, mm-hmm. They really hate that. <laughs> but I kind of think that's right. I don't I don't have a, a great grasp on, I mean, maybe there is some epistemic category that knowledge picks out and it's good, but I don't think it's very interesting. At least not in this realm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a, I, I don't have a non-polemical take on this. Okay, okay, very good. That's, that's very fun. Well, that's wonderful. So, I guess I'm going to circle back around to all of this. We've looked at perfectionism versus supererogatory acts. We've looked at structural understanding of action instead of causal. And then we looked briefly at your partial evidentialism when it comes to faith. What do you think the human person is? Oh, man. I mean, in part, I have no idea. But I will say uh, something that is related to this because I think a reaction I get a lot to the the paper on structural understanding of act is uh who cares? Who cares what the explanatory relation is between reasons and actions? This seems like extremely banal. And I totally understand that criticism. But I do think that how we answer this question does have a bearing on our idea of the kinds of things that we are. So I will uh see if I can describe this well. So take uh, the the case of chess again. I might say I'm playing a game of chess with you and and two things are happening that I want to explain. The first thing is that you are unable to castle. Castling is a move in chess. That's the thing I might want to explain. You're unable to castle. The second thing that happens is that some of my pieces spontaneously begin to melt. These two things that I want to explain merit very different explanations. My piece is melting. If I try to explain that, I'm going to maybe try to posit some kind of causal entity. There is some kind of chemical on my pieces because it's uh, 70 degrees in here, not hot enough for them to melt. So I'm going to posit some sort of causal mechanism. When I'm explaining why you can't castle, on the other hand, I'm not going to posit a causal mechanism. I'm actually going to make reference to a part of the game. You can't castle because your king is in check. So these are very different kinds of explanations. And uh, Wilfred Sellers has a wonderful paper called Philosophy and the Scientific Image of Man, where he gives a name to these two different domains of explanation. The domain of explanation that the melting pieces falls into, he calls the scientific image. The scientific image is the realm of things that we explain and understand by positing these entities that kind of cause them or or compose them. The manifest image, which is the image that uh, the domain that the um, that your inability to castle falls within, that uh, that that's a, a manifest chess image. And all that means is that 
<clears throat> all my tools for talking about what happens in this domain, those are just things that are already part of the manifest image. So my tools for explaining why you can't castle just has to be some aspect of chess itself, namely the rule that people can't castle when they're in check, when their king is in check. So the causal theory of action, broadly speaking, understands human actions as a part of the scientific image, something where to explain it is to explain some entity that acts physically upon it and causes it to occur. My understanding of human agency is that it's a feature of a manifest image. The manifest image of, of, of I don't know, agency, I suppose, is, is just the manifest image it's a part of. This understanding that there is, there is a, a, a realm of, of things that, that exist that, that, that need to be explained that aren't features of, of, of the, the scientific world. They, they arise from it and are um, sort of, I, I suppose Wittgenstein would call it a language game. And I think, in fact, Wittgenstein was very, uh, or Sellers was very Wittgensteinian in his understanding of a manifest image. It's kind of a language game, a, a way of seeing the world. So in any case, I think why it matters, uh, you know, how we, how, what explains what we're doing uh, is exactly this question you were asking. It bears on what kinds of things people are. And I think that I don't have a fully worked out idea of what people are, but that something that's really important about people is that they want to live lives that make sense and make sense in a more robust way than just we can see how effects follow from causes. They want to live a life that makes sense in a very holistic way. And that that's something essential about humans and about a good human life. That's fantastic. Thank you. That was a beautiful answer and I appreciate it. Well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and I uh, appreciate your taking the time and your explaining all this very fascinating work and I uh, wish you the very best. Thank you. It was so much fun. Thanks for having me on. This is a particular good podcast. Particular good, not particular good. <laughs> you can't say it every time. <laughs> <laughs> it's a name, not a claim. <laughs>